All right, take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians 3, Paul has given a final message to the believers of the church of Philippi. Paul loved this church. He rejoiced in this church, but he was, in my interpretation and estimation, afraid for this church. They were divided to a degree enough that it seems Paul was compelled first to write unto them and then second to send back Epaphroditus, who had been a tremendous blessing to him personally. And the final message, the final call, began with an exhortation. Rejoice in the Lord. Not to rejoice in themselves, but to rejoice in the Lord. And this call came with a warning that they should beware Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. And as I taught on this, I told you that I interpret all three of these to be the same group of people. And that group being Jewish legalizers who sought to compel the church to resubmit themselves to the precepts of the laws of, law of Moses as a matter of religious necessity. We surmise this from verse 3 where Paul contrasts this warning to beware of dogs, to beware of evil workers, to beware of the concision, with a um, declaration, a statement of fact, that believers are the circumcision, not the Jews. And last week we dedicated our time, we dedicated the message to understanding what this means and what this does not. That this does not mean biblically that the church has replaced Israel as it relates to all of the promises from the Old Testament, but only that Israel has been set aside and the church has assumed her duties following the, her personal rejection of Messiah. And we talked through that, and we talked through the hope and the expectation and the restoration and all of that, so we spent our time dedicated to chapter 3, verse 3 last week. And Paul is going to continue along this line of thinking today, compelling the church to understand that to put our confidence in the flesh now remember, notice how this went. It went from rejoice in the Lord to beware of this certain type of people. That, that would be the concision, those who mutilate themselves, the circumcisers, because we are the circumcision, not them. We worship the Lord in spirit. We have no confidence in the flesh. And now Paul is going to elaborate on the idea of having no confidence in the flesh that we do not put our confidence in a subset of actions in order to establish our standing with God. And to try to do so is, in fact, a fool's errand. An entirely antithetical process. If we submit ourselves to some measure of the flesh or put our confidence in the flesh, it is entirely antithetical to the whole message of grace which forms the very foundation of the gospel. Much to the contrary, Paul will tell us that when he was confronted with the truths of the gospel, in order that he could receive them properly, he was compelled to set aside the confidence that he had in himself. And the confidence that he had in himself was the confidence that he had placed in his capacity to keep the law and his history of keeping the law. And so we do see that this is a warning against the legalizer, the Judaizer. And in order for him to put his full confidence in Christ, in Christ, he had to set aside the things which he perceived as his own spiritual accomplishments in this life. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And we're going to ask a question to our own body of believers. 
Where is our confidence as it relates to our Christian, to our relationship with the Lord? Where is our confidence as it relates to our Christian walk? Is your confidence in something within yourself? Is your confidence in some measure of accomplishment? Or is your confidence in the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. It is neat to see the merging of the morning and the evening messages as we have considered so much in the morning messages being strong in grace. And then here in these evening messages, very much the same compulsion, to be strong in grace. So let's dig into the text, verses 4 through 6. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin and Hebrew of the Hebrews is touching the law, Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So notice as Paul is speaking of the flesh here, he's not necessarily speaking of the flesh as we think of of, of, of sin, right? The works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, right? Not necessarily those in its purest form, but when he's speaking of the flesh, he's talking about any capacity that he has in himself to do anything that can please the Lord. Confidence in himself, right? Confidence in his heart, confidence in his intentions, confidence in his motives, confidence in his capacities, confidence in his understanding, confidence in his discipline, these are the things that are here spoken of as his flesh. And we see that as he relays the things that he calls his flesh, right? These are material things. That he was circumcised the eighth day. He says that's a part of the confidence that he could have in his flesh. That he was of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. That's a part of the confidence he could have in his flesh. That he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, right? He... he he, he, he was of the Hebrews a Hebrew, right? He knew where he stood very well. He was a Pharisee as it pertained to the law. They were the most zealous group as it related to the law. He was a persecutor of the church because he was so zealous for the tradition of his fathers. And then as pertaining to the righteousness which is in the law, he was blameless. No one could point to anything he did and say, you are not keeping the law of Moses. So notice this link that Paul makes as we step into verse 4, that these requirements, circumcision specifically, but more broadly, all of the confidences in the law of Moses, as we also see Paul teach and warn against in Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians, he equates those with this confidence in the flesh. That for a man to submit himself to the law of Moses as a means by which to establish his standing before God, to establish his own righteousness, is to pursue an impossible task. Because to do so is to place one's confidence not in what Christ has done for me, but what I think I can do for myself. And this is the textbook definition of self-righteousness. And self-righteous, the self-righteous, will not stand before the Lord. So Paul says, if any man thinks he has any capacity to trust in the flesh in order to find righteousness or favor with God, Paul would outclass them all. And he runs down this righteous resume. But when Paul was confronted with Jesus on the road to Damascus, when Paul devoted himself to following Jesus Christ, what Paul found is that none of those things he just mentioned had any merit in the eyes of God. 
that those things did not earn for him the merit that he was hoping and desiring that they would earn for him. You say, now, pastor, that sounds kind of harsh. I mean, there is value in keeping certain elements of the law, right? And I have preached on that, and I encourage you, if you don't remember what I said on that, to go back and to listen to those messages. I preached that law series, I guess it was about a year ago now. Um, and you can get those questions answered. The short answer, however, is that the law's primary value, the law's primary function, unquestionably, as the New Testament teaches, the law's primary function is to condemn the heart of the unbeliever, to show him just how far short he falls of God, that the harder an unbeliever tries to keep it, the more he realizes he can't, the more he realizes how far short he falls of the righteousness which the law demands, and that should cause any man who interacts with it to flee with every fiber of his being to grace, because that's the only hope that he has. If grace fails, we've got nothing left, because grace is the only hope we have. That is the primary function of the law. Galatians 3 makes that clear. 1 Timothy 1 makes that clear. But the law does have a, a value as a means of also learning God's character, right? We learn his structure. We learn the things that he loves and the things that he hates. We learn that uh, God is a God that, that, likes, that, that likes and desires balance. We learn that God is a God that does not like the blurring of distinctions. Hence the reason why he asked Israel not to shave their heads and tattoo their bodies, because he does not like the blurring of distinctions between the pagans and the, and, and, and the followers of God. He does not want his people to look like demon worshipers. Hence the reason why God would say a man does not wear that which pertains unto a woman, because God is a God of distinction, right? False weights, false balances, and abomination to the Lord. We learn all of those things in the law as it relates to the nature of God's character, the law has a value of directing a person into a framework of moral living, but the law has no power to establish righteousness. No power to bring about the knowledge or relationship, a knowledge or a relationship with God. Only Jesus Christ and grace can do that. And Paul makes this clear as he continues in the text. He says, but what things were gain to me those I counted loss for Christ. The Greek words behind the translation gain is one used only three times in the New Testament. Two of those three times we find it in the book of Philippians. And the idea is to earn something. So what I counted to be something that I had earned, something that I was worthy of, and do take note of that, that as it related to the law, it's not that he kept the law. It's not that he wanted to do the things in the law because he thought that, 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 that this was a, a right way to live under a God whom he believed. But when he was confronted with the gospel of grace, he recognized that the things he was doing were in the flesh, that he was trying to earn something. And he said, those things that were an earning to me, a gain to me, I had to count loss for Christ. The thing which Paul thought he was earning, that, that he thought earned him standing in favor with God, was the first thing he had to release if he wanted to pursue knowledge in Christ. And when Paul committed himself to following Christ, the first collateral damage that he faced was his own confidence in his own moral standing. And I say the first because as Paul continues, he is going to broaden the concept 
Paul has spoken of his own experience. He's taught this principle on his own terms for two reasons. First, as a warning specifically against legalizers, of which Paul has specifically already said, beware in verse 2. Beware of uh, dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of concision. He, uh, implying that those men are men who have their confidence in the flesh. They have their confidence in the things that they can earn and do for God. And Paul says, the first thing I had to do when I was confronted with the gospel is let those things go and recognize that I cannot earn my way to God. I cannot earn righteousness with God. I cannot earn favor with God. That's why Jesus had to die. Second, he is teaching this as a means of connecting the condition of the knowledge of the holy to his own personal experience. But make no mistake, Paul's teaching does go well beyond simply self-righteousness established through keeping the law. And we see this as we get to verse 8. He says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. Paul says not only did he count the righteousness of the law, which he had devoted his life to, the idea is the very, this was, Pharisaism was his, it wasn't just his spiritual philosophy, it was his job, can I put it that way? Right, a Pharisee did that, that's what they did. They were Pharisees. And he had to set it, he set it all aside. His entire life's effort in a moment went from being the very monument, the hill upon which he sat, to a lie. Whereby grace annulled all of that effort. Now, it doesn't mean God didn't use his learning, that God didn't... It, it wasn't a waste in that God was going to be able to use it. Right? The things that happened to you before you met Christ, all of the things of which you are now ashamed whether you met Christ after a period in a season of self-righteousness, where you were a moral person really doing your best to earn your way to God, or whether you met Christ uh, after a period of just utter and abject rebellion and darkness. Either way, it's not a loss in the sense of God can use your experiences. God can use the, the, the things that you have gone through to give you a perspective and to bring you into a position whereby you can be used by God and be effective for Him. Yet simultaneously, what, what we find here is that everything that Paul had been trusting in, and he had dedicated his life to this effort, became like that, useless to him toward its original intent. And Paul says, beyond just the righteousness which is in the law, he has now counted all things but loss for the knowledge of Christ. It's one thing to say, okay, well, I spent these years devoting myself to the philosophy of the Pharisees. Now I come face to face with grace and with Jesus Christ, and I realize that none of that effort, none of those hours and hours and hours that he put into all of that merit had earned him anything with God. And yet he says, beyond just that, now, as he sits and he writes to the Philippian church, what else has he lost? He's been beaten. He's been torn. He's been bruised. He's been cast out of cities. 
He's been in prison several times. He's been shipwrecked. He had to count far more than just his own self-righteousness but loss. He says, now I count all things but loss. My own priorities, my own time, my own desires, my own intentions, my own expectations, my own fill-in-the-blank, my own health. Paul says, I counted all but loss. Why? Because what he tasted on the day that he gave up self-righteousness for Christ. Do you remember that taste? Do you remember when you tasted and saw that the Lord was good? Do you remember when you recognized? Do you remember those early days of zeal where you looked back and you saw all of those things and you saw the world around you and you said, this is all so worthless and it's all so meaningless and it all means so little and you wanted Christ. That's what you wanted. And that taste that Paul got when he counted all things but, when, when he counted the, the, his efforts but loss, he said, what if I can taste that again? What if I count more but loss? It doesn't mean God's going to take it all, but what if I reckon it to be on, what, what, if, what if I put that on the chopping block too? What if I give that to God too? Could I take another step deeper into the knowledge of God? Might, might I get a little bit closer to God? Might there be more of God that I, I, I don't even know yet? God, what else? What else can I give you so that I might know you better? What else might you bring me to so that I might know you better? What more can I count but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord? Paul testified that when he yielded his own righteousness, when he yielded those things and placed them on the altar of knowing Christ, he did so not because he had to, but because Christ was superior. He gained something far more than what he lost when he counted all of those years of study, all of those years of effort, all of those years of merit, but loss. He said, I gained, I didn't lose. So what if I lay my health on the altar? What will I gain? Because it won't be a loss. Right? What if I lay my time on the altar? What might I gain? Because it won't be a loss. What if I lay my priorities on the altar? What will I gain? See, because it won't be a net loss. For the superiority, the excellence, that's what that word excellence means, the superiority, the better thing of the knowledge of Christ. Paul says, all things that I have counted but lost, all things that I have laid on the altar, I have exchanged for a better thing. And that better thing is the knowledge of Christ. We all have a lot of plans. We all have a lot of desires. We all have a lot of visions. We all have a lot of thoughts as to what could be and what we might want to be. But nothing that we could achieve in this life is holds a candle to the, to the superior thing that is the knowledge of Christ. And we have to believe that by faith. Now, again, you can look back and you can see it. You can look back and you can see those times where you laid something on the altar and you grew, Right? And you learned, and you, you, you got closer to the Lord, and you, 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 you delved new depths. But each time, it's going to take that faith, looking back on something, believing what the Lord has said, and laying something on the altar once again. So Paul says that the knowledge of Christ is better than holding on to anything that would hinder said knowledge. Now let's take this concept and broaden it out to the broader scope of the, of the narrative of Philippians a bit more. Remember, Paul is deeply concerned about the church. 
because of the degree to which it seems as though they were lacking personal unity in their midst. There were divisions. There were murmurings. There were complainings. And within the scope of these divisions and murmurings and complainings, Paul exhorted them to have the mind of Christ by which they would esteem other better than themselves. To look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And even one of the messages I preached within the scope of that time, I think it was right before COVID, was, why would I want to do that? Why would anyone do such a thing? You think about that manner of living where I am placing others above myself, and it doesn't sound like a lot of fun to anyone. It doesn't sound like a very good plan. And yet, imagine Paul exhorting them unto the mind of Christ. And he, he gave them the reasons because God had highly exalted him and given him a name. God has every right to it. it there is there's blessing to be found in it. But here Paul is giving now effectively what we, call, what we would call a personal testimony. And as Paul is giving his personal testimony of the confidence that he once placed in, in, the, in the flesh and of all of the advantages that he had because of the confidence that he placed in the flesh, and then he said, and you know what I did? I met Christ, and I put it on the altar, and I got something better. And is there any doubt that what is running through Paul's mind, mind as he writes this is, you know that mind of Christ? And it, it, it's a tough one, but if you place that on the altar... You place yourself on the altar. You quit with the disputings. You quit with the murmurings. You quit with the divisions. You lay that on the altar and you seek unto that which God has promised. You're going to get something back so much better. In chapter 3, Paul began his address, um, began by addressing uh, the, the, the God of self, as it were, as it relates to self-righteousness and dependence upon external ordinances, this Judaizing uh, philosophy. Chapter 2 was contending with the God of self as it relates to holding myself above the needs of others or holding myself above others. And while it would not seem as though legalizers were necessarily the primary battle of the Philippian church, Paul uses that warning to then step into this testimony of how superior the knowledge of Christ is to any of those petty things that we would seek to hold on to in this life. And as I say petty things, I'm not just talking about petty things. They're not petty to us. The, the real the things that matter are not petty to us, right? My right, my right to be understood, my right to have my way, my right to have things go the way I think they ought to, my right for the health of my, for my health, for the health of my family, for the health of my children. These are hard things. These are big things, right? My personal finances, these are big things. And yet, in, in, in light of the superiority of Christ, they're, they're minor. For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, if it might be that I could draw closer to the Lord by having to lay down my health on the altar, would I be willing? Am I willing? Is it on the altar? If I might draw closer to a knowledge of my Lord, by, uh, my Lord by laying my vision for my future upon the altar, is it worth it? Paul declared in verse 8, I count all things but loss. It is impossible, but that assertion is also an exhortation to them to assume the mind of Christ, to set aside themselves that they might be unified but then to recognize that that's just the tip of the iceberg. 
as they could grow into something so much more if their priorities, their vision, their desire is on the altar. For the name of Christ, Paul had suffered the loss of all things. In order to win Christ, Paul had given up his pharisaical standing, his acceptance in society, his potential wealth, his material prosperity, his health, his his vision for his own future, uh, his time, his priorities, his desires, his expectations. But all of those things paled in comparison to what he gained by knowing Christ. We've spoken for months now about this difficulty of wanting the mind of Christ, the difficulty of setting ourselves aside for others. And this is made particularly difficult if I have the mindset that the thing I'm doing, that as I'm setting myself aside, I'm doing it for you. I may not even like you particularly. (laughs) Why am I setting myself aside for you? But when at once my mind transitions to a context whereby I see setting myself aside for you not necessarily as doing it for you, but rather doing it that I might know Christ better. It changes the whole perspective, doesn't it? It is here that I can wholly, openly, joyfully submit myself to this charge and any other charge that the Lord would lay upon me. Because knowledge of Christ is far superior to my own rights. Drawing nigh unto Christ is a better thing by far than personal or material considerations. Do we believe that? Do we truly believe that the knowledge of Christ is worth whatever earthly loss it might ask of me? Am I willing to suffer the loss of my rights to win Christ? Am I willing to suffer the loss even of an argument to win Christ? We stand upon truth, as Paul has in chapter 3, that the law of Moses cannot in any way establish my standing in Christ, that grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And for to win Christ, we have set aside any attempts to earn merit with God through self-righteousness. We uh, all would agree here very, very uh, vehemently that there is no salvation to be found through the law. But then we are confronted with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Then we are confronted with our priorities, our bank accounts, our health, our vision for the future, our expectations. We're confronted with the twists and turns of life, with the quirks and eccentricities of others. We are confronted with perspectives. We are confronted with disagreements. We are confronted with with any number of problems. And we begin to murmur. We begin to dispute. We begin to worry. We we begin to fear. We get anxious. We start to distance ourselves. We get uh, angry, whatever it might be. So we kind of circle the wagons. We claim our territory. We hold fast. We claim what we can. We hold to what we can. All the while not realizing that By doing so, what we're actually yielding is a greater knowledge of Christ. Paul states that all things are on the altar that he may know Christ better. All things that he might otherwise value, he was willing to yield. If only he might retain the value of knowing Christ more, of associating with Christ 
more, of, of drawing nigh unto Christ, whether that drawing nigh is simply by experiencing the, the Lord's suffering and then, and then experiencing His grace in the midst of that suffering, or whether that drawing nigh is the, a, a spiritual growth that will take place as I yield my own rights and perspectives, whatever it might be. Paul said, I count it all but loss for the superior thing, the better thing, the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now we draw our minds back to the direct context as we continue. Paul is speaking about his point of decision to follow Christ's righteousness as opposed to the self-righteousness contained in the law. He continues in verse 9, And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Paul states the righteousness contained in the law is what? Self-righteousness, right? That the keeping of the law is an extension of religious zeal by its very design and thus an effort in self-righteous religious zeal. As Paul sought to win the knowledge of Christ, he was thus compelled to yield self-righteousness in order to do that. And in order to yield self-righteousness, he had to yield his merit, the merit that he had placed in the keeping of the law. For as Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 tells us, without faith it is impossible to please God. And so we are confronted with this most basic of biblical truths, that the thing which pleases God in every context is faith. And we've defined faith numerous times within the church. We spent an entire uh, season of the church's uh, midweek life in Hebrews 11. And our general conclusion as we sought to define faith the way the Bible defines it is this, that faith is confidence in God, confidence in God's promises, founded upon the reliability of scriptures and of the God who gave them to us despite the uncertainties of life. And as we consider the message of scriptures, faith compels us to understand in no uncertain terms that the only merit any of us can have with God is the merit that is found and earned through Jesus Christ. And that is what Paul states here. The purpose of Jesus as he walked upon this earth was twofold. First, it was to earn for us the righteousness of God, which we could not earn for ourselves through his finished work on the cross. The Lamb of God slain for us that taketh away the sin of the world. That he who knew no sin became sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. But there was a second reason why Jesus came also. The first reason was that he would earn for us the righteousness that we could not earn in ourselves, because he was righteous and we were not. The second was to show us how, in a mortal body filled and surrounded by sin and the sin-cursed world, we can follow in his steps. He came to show us the way, right? He came to purchase for us the power, to purchase for us the standing, and then to exhort us and to show us, to be an example for us about how we can follow in his steps. Jesus came to set the example, to suffer so that when we suffer, we don't wonder where something went wrong. To lack so that when we lack, we don't wonder where, where something went wrong to love the unlovable so that to love the unlovable so that we might love the unlovable right jesus came to love the unlovable so that we might love the unlovable to be patient to be peaceful to be deliberate in the face of sin and evil so that we might learn how to be patient 
peaceful, and deliberate in the face of sin and evil. To submit to authorities that we might learn to submit to authorities. Jesus forged the path that he asked us to trod, and in that he forged the path, he had given us two blessed assurances. First, that when we go through the hard times that faith compels us unto, following the course that Jesus has set, we know without a doubt that Jesus understands our sufferings. You know, right? You know that Jesus understands when you go through hard times. You know that Jesus understands your sorrow. You know that Jesus understands your confusion. You know that Jesus understands your doubts, your shame, your indignity, your disgrace. We know that Jesus understands because he lived this life. And that's a great consolation to us so that the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we and yet without sin. Second, when we go through these hard times by faith, following the course that Jesus Christ has set, we know that the suffering we experience will also be rewarded. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus Christ, right? We talked about Philippians 2 already, that because Jesus assumed this mind and took upon himself the form of a servant, the Lord hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. As I follow my Lord by faith, I identify with and associate with his sufferings. And not only does it give me confidence that my Lord knows what I've gone through, but it gives me confidence to know. It gives me the joy of knowing Christ better because I have associated myself with his sufferings. So by faith, I have every confidence that I will share in Christ's victory. But I also have confidence that, the, that I have known Christ better. And all of this is unto that end in verses 10 and 11. Paul says, I do all of this. I count all the things but loss that I may know him. The power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable into, unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. That I may be a partaker of the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, Paul says that I might be made conformable unto Christ's death, that as I lay all things out, he's not necessarily talking about being persecuted, but he's talking about counting all things but loss, dying to self. And as he dies to self, he is made alive unto Christ. As he conforms himself more through loss, you know, sometimes we, 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 we sing that, that song. Is your all on the altar of sacrifice laid? Your heart does the Spirit control. And we ask that question, is your all on the altar, right? And I would hope that the majority of us, to one degree or another, would reflect a measure of confidence that they are. My children are on the altar. My wife is on the altar. My health is on the altar. But as we go through that mental and spiritual exercise of, 
of, of laying these things on the altar, the day that I know they're actually on the altar is on the day when the Lord tests it, proves it, right? Yet my future's on the altar until the day that your future is dramatically changed. Then is it really on the altar? And that's where that exercise comes to bear, it comes to fruition in that I have determined in my heart that it is so. And then when that day comes, I am exercised and ready to lay it out, right? So it's not a useless exercise. But Paul said, I lay it all out. I put it all on the altar so that in every instance of life, whatever would come my way, I can associate with Christ in that thing. Know Christ better in that thing. Grow closer to God. Understand God better in that thing. Paul is not hoping here to suffer and die, but only that his mindset and his actions would conform to those of Christ, which, would, which led Christ to his suffering and death. That Paul's mindset and actions would operate in the same spirit as those of Jesus Christ, even if it were to mean the same thing, suffering and death. Paul's earnest desire is that he would be so dedicated to the knowledge of Christ, so conformed to the mind of Christ, so invested in the righteousness which is of God by faith, that any assessment of suffering would pale in comparison to the opportunity to identify with his Savior. Because he has already laid it all on the altar. Because he has counted it all but loss. So he wakes up in the morning and he has an expectation for the day and yet that whole expectation is counted but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Lord, if you want to divert my day, my day is yours to divert. Every morning I get up and I thank the Lord for the health of my children, but yet Lord, if you want to divert the health of my children, it is yours to divert and I count it but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Every day I wake up and I say, Lord, thank you for the position you've put me in, for, the, for, for the, the place you've put me in, for the time you've put me in. And yet if the Lord would see fit to divert it for the excellency of, his knowledge, uh, of the knowledge of the Christ Jesus, my Lord, it's on the altar for him. Is that the way you're living? To whatever degree I identify with the mind of Christ, the righteousness which is of Christ, by which Jesus suffered and died, to that same degree, uh, God will identify me with the resurrection of Jesus Christ by which Jesus was exalted and rewarded. And take note of this careful distinction. When Paul says, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, Paul is not saying here that he is compelled to do these things because he needs to earn a place in the resurrection. Uh-uh. We know that this cannot be what Paul means. Because Paul has already said in this very context that his only hope is Christ's righteousness, not his own, right? Which means he cannot earn a place in the resurrection. He cannot attain unto salvation in that sense. So Paul is not saying here that he's hoping to earn a spot in the resurrection. Rather, we keep this statement in context whereby Paul stated in chapter 2 that Jesus obtained a resurrection unto reward and inheritance through his faithful obedience to the will of the Father. And Paul thus states here with all determination that on the day when he stands before God, complete in Christ, because of, all, uh, because of what Christ has done, he is likewise determined that his life will have been so defined by following Christ 
even unto suffering and death, if that were the call, that he will thus be able to live in the resurrection defined by Christ's victory and inheritance in its fullness. So in other words, he's not talking about whether or not he will uh, see the resurrection of the dead, but whether, or, but the disposition of that resurrection, the inheritance of Christ. So when God highly exalted Christ and gave him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. And when the Bible tells us that we will be co-heirs with Christ's inheritance, Paul says, I, by any means necessary, will attain unto the the maximum glory of that resurrection. It's the exact same thing that Paul said this morning. We'll reference it again in a moment, in fact. 2 Corinthians 9. Paul said, I run that I might obtain. Paul really wanted it. And that's what he's expressing here. Going back to that question, 1 Corinthians 9, excuse me, that question that, that I asked this morning, how bad do you want it? So Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize, so run that ye may obtain. That's what Paul is saying here. He's not saying obtain, obtain born-again status, obtain uh, eternal life, run that ye may obtain unto the glory of the resurrection. Run that ye may obtain unto the rewards of your inheritance. Run that ye might win the crown. A race is a competition. You run a race to win. Now today we have races where it doesn't matter whether you win, but those aren't races. Those are runs, right? Those are runs, not races. You can have a run and you can have a race. In a run, everybody wins. In a race, one person wins. And only one. And Paul exhorts the believers to run that they might obtain. The resurrection is the glorious end to our lives, but the disposition of our lives really matters to this. We run that we may obtain. And the things we yield in this life, not simply for the sake of self-denial, we're not talking about becoming a monk and, and, and wearing rags and going and living in the hills somewhere and, and doing nothing because you've given up all the things that you have in this life. You've given up houses and cars and technology and whatnot. We're not talking about self-denial. We're talking about laying things on the altar so that if the Lord wants it, he can have it. Yielding the potential that we might otherwise have aspired unto in this life, in the flesh. Yielding the confidence that I might other ha otherwise have in, this, in myself or in the flesh. Yielding my rights before others that I might otherwise have as we think about that idea of, of, of serving others and yielding ourselves to others. Yielding my rights to the rights of others in this world. When we seek into the knowledge and the mind of Christ in such a yielded and submissive manner as Christ sought unto the will of the Father, this faith will redound in eternity unto reward, unto the greater results of the resurrection of the dead, unto uh, the heightened fullness of life eternal. So that Paul would say in Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 18, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Paul says here that we are joint heirs with Christ, that to whatever degree we yield ourselves to the mind of Christ, even unto suffering and loss, verse 17, setting aside our own priorities, setting aside our own desires, setting aside our own rights, we will likewise share in Christ's glorification. 
instilling in us the utmost confidence that any suffering, be it the suffering of service, be it the suffering of yieldedness, be it the suffering of loss, in the name of Christ, not because I've been a fool, not because I've been reckless, but in the name of Christ, any suffering is not even worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. That's the knowledge of Christ. That's the resurrection of the dead unto which Paul is saying he is attaining unto. If only we follow in his steps. Paul was a man who had every resource at his disposal to rest in his confidence in himself before God. And yet he knew that to do so would be to attempt the impossible. So he counted all of those efforts, all of those virtues, the earthly material, even moral, as loss for the superiority of knowing Christ Jesus. And then he took it one step further, and he said, everything else that I might have in this life, every other priority, every other desire, every other opportunity, I'm submitting those to Christ as well. If by means that glory that I tasted at the moment that I counted all these things but loss unto salvation might be duplicated and replicated in me again and again and again and again as I submit my day, as I submit my week, as I submit my, my, my health, as I submit my years, as I submit my priorities, as I submit my rights to the Lord, to his will. He may never ask for these things, but it's on the altar. And the question is this evening, how are we doing? What are you holding on to? Convinced that to lose that thing, to give it up for Christ, whether or not Christ is even asking for it, what are you holding on to? Convinced that by, by, by hanging on to it, by, convinced that if you lost it, there would actually be some loss. When in fact, what you are doing is yielding the excellency of the knowledge of Christ for something which is temporal, fleeting, at best. May not be a bad thing. May be a very good thing. May be a right thing. But if you're hanging on to it, saying, God, that's a part of my life you can't have. You can't have my hope for the future. That's mine. You can't have my expectation. That's mine. You can't have my rights. That's mine. You can't have my children. They're mine. You can't have my, 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 my job security. That's mine. What you're doing is you're grabbing a hold of something temporal at the expense of something eternal. You're grabbing a hold of something which has relatively, on an eternal basis, relatively little importance at the expense of something which is worth the wealth of the world and beyond. So where have you been selfish? Where have you been self-righteous? Where have you gone your own way? Can you see with the eyes of faith to understand the zeal that Paul reflects here? To understand that what you stand to gain through what you are asked to give is greater than what you could ever possibly lose. 
The rewards of Christ's inheritance are reserved for those not who follow self, not who follow morality, not who follow legality, but those who follow Christ. God help us that we might be willing to do so. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.